It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast once again, everyone. We, uh, as always, appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we are up to week 12 of the 2015 Division Three football season, the podcast for November 23rd of 2015. And, uh, you know, sometimes the playoffs are about winning ugly. You don't need to impress voters. You don't need to impress a committee. Uh, and perhaps you aren't playing in ideal weather, right? Even St. Thomas, a, a team which seems like it enjoys winning pretty with a flair, took a while to get started on Saturday, as Glenn Caruso admitted. Uh, it's a great feeling when you get to playoff time, and uh, it's a different feeling for sure. It's less about uh, any sort of style points and more about uh, accomplishing what you need to move on to the next round. Obviously, we did that. Hats off to the Leopards. Uh, brought a really, really tough team, I think. Winning ugly is winning nonetheless, but what we ended up with on Saturday was just plain ugly. There's no point in sugarcoating it. Uh, we did not have that greatest 90 minutes in Division Three football that uh, you usually get at the end of those uh, first-round games uh, this time around. Not even close. even saw people referencing the uh, fact that the, the real playoffs start next week or that maybe we didn't even need that first round of the postseason. And, man, you know, if not for Ohio Northern, we didn't have a whole lot of excitement on Saturday. Keith, please tell me I'm wrong on this. Pat, you're, you're not wrong. And the 16 first-round winners may have been as dominant as any year we can remember. On one hand, this is totally typical of the first round as the nature of, of the opening Saturday of the playoffs is that a lot of great seasons come to abrupt ends. But I think on, on this particular Saturday, it was the way they ended. There were 10-0 and 0 teams like Washington Lee or Western New England more or less getting their doors blown off. Uh, there was Laverne going halfway across the country and making it interesting for a quarter, quarter and a half. But, but after losing their, uh, their top two quarterbacks, they just didn't have enough for St. Thomas. And I think what was different than most years is those four or five games or three, five, four, six seeded games, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Those games, those games didn't deliver. Uh, there were a few like Huntington, Hendricks and Wesley, Framingham State that were closer than their final scores made them appear. But the expected battles between Mary Harden Baylor and Harden Simmons or Thomas Moore and WNL or Cortland State and Salisbury, those didn't really materialize. And so we got a first round where the good teams flexed. Home teams were 14 and 2. Pool C teams were 5 and 1, which was kind of interesting. And uh, the margin of victory was three scores, 18 points or more in all but two games. The flip side, though, is that there are some second round matchups to really drool over from Tommy Johnny Part 2 to Whitewater versus Wheaton to Thomas Moore Wabash. Yeah, I mean, this is just a fluke, right? Just a luck of the draw. Clear separation between the 16 winners and losers. Not an indictment of the system. Well, maybe it's an indictment of this particular bracket, which matched up at least one second-round-worthy team with a dominant opponent in round one. But mostly it's just the nature of the beast if we want to have automatic qualifier access to the postseason for conferences from coast to coast. I also think if money allowed for the bracket perfection, we wouldn't have seen the best game of the day, the Ohio Northern-Franklin matchup. The good news is that we have a playoff system that sorts out the champions on the field, and in the process of weeding out the great teams from the pretty good, you get pretty definitive proof on who deserves to move on, and we'll get our dramatic finishes, hopefully, in rounds two, three, four, and if we're lucky, in Salem. Yeah, here's hoping. Uh, going along with winning ugly was the fact that the conditions themselves were pretty darn ugly at a few of the games. Uh, seems like the worst of the snow was at Wabash and Wheaton with uh, Whitewater getting some of the white stuff as well. And Thomas Moore kind of south of the dividing line getting mostly rain. Uh, here's Wheaton coach Mike Swider talking about the conditions there where the thunder rolled past Lakeland by a score of 55 to 6. You know, I've never in all my life been coaching now 37 years and this was, this was as bad a condition as I've ever seen. 
you know, the wind and the snow, you know, I mean, the, the first half was unbelievable. It was absolutely unbelievable to be able to play in that. And our guys really did a great job, Andrew here, just, you know, managing that. Just managing that. And if you put points on the board, it's just, it's just ridiculously difficult. And uh, defensively, we knew we could stop these guys, and, you know, up front. They, they, their key was throwing the football, and this weather didn't help them. And our front four didn't help them either. Wheaton scored 14 points in the first 62 seconds of that game, and frankly, you could have called the game at that point. Uh, Keith, just remind us what it's like to play offense and then what it's like to play defense in conditions like those. Well, look, it's bad enough when it's just cold out, the way the ball hits your hand, you know, whether you wear gloves or not. It's, uh, it's certainly a lot different than when you're playing in, in September or, or late August, and uh, you know those passes kind of float into your hands. Um, then you add the, the precipitation on top of it, the, the ball gets wet, the ball gets heavy. That's one thing. But the real big difference, I think, for most players is the traction. And uh, for defense, obviously, you're reacting to, to offensive players who are cutting. So um, you, you have to almost slow down a step just to be able to change direction and, and react. And, and you, you mirror players that you're supposed to be mirroring. Um, offensive and defensive linemen, they don't get the, the defensive linemen don't get their get off. So they, they can't, you know, um, rush the passer quite as well. The offensive linemen don't get as much push if they can't really, uh, you know, dig their feet into the turf or, or grass. If, if I don't even know if we have any playoff teams that, that still play on grass. But I, I think and that's the biggest thing. And then it reduces the game plan for, uh, for a lot of teams, teams that like to spread it out and throw or, um, you know, any plays that you might have in the, in the book where a couple people touch the ball, a double pass or a halfback pass, you want to reduce the number of times you have to exchange that ball if it's going to be heavy and wet. So I, I think that's the biggest difference. Um, but if, if you approach it right, too, it can be a lot of fun. And, and, and you know, if you're on the website, uh, at the time you're reading this or if you've you visited us uh, over the weekend or even if you plan to sometime during the week, those pictures of, of Mason Zurich running down uh, the field with the snow or, uh, or the kid from Ohio Northern, you know, exulting after one of the touchdowns, those are like iconic pictures and those are moments that if you, uh, if you were one of the winning teams on Saturday that played in the snow, you have great memories. And if you're one of the losing teams, you certainly uh, burn up a little bit about the game, but you have to be... Uh, Maybe years down the line, you'll look back and say that that playoff game at Wabash or or, or wherever was uh, was a lot of fun to play in the snow. There's no accident that those pictures are on the front page. But that's me. I come from a snowy part of the country. Even if we didn't have snow in uh, the, game, the places where Minnesota played games on Saturday. We'll be talking more about snow in just a moment. Uh, as part of this podcast, though, Keith and I will still give out our game balls. And then uh, let's run through each part of the bracket, picking out a key point uh, or to highlight and the most intriguing matchup in the second round. All right, time for my game ball. Uh, I got to go with Mason Zurich. End of story. I'll talk about him. All right. He ran over all, uh, all over DePaul for 278 yards last week in the Monon Bell game and then went for 312 on Saturday versus Albion to carry the Little Giants into the second round. Literally, Keith, 
you look at the highlight reel of this game, and I think it's an old newsreel of a game in the 40s. Big flakes of snow look like dust uh, that you know you would get on old films and the projectors, and the snow makes everything look pretty monochrome like a black and white uh, film. And Plus, the offense was a, a little old-fashioned there as well in the second half uh, because of the snow, but it sure was effective as uh, Zurich led Wabash to a 35-14 win versus Albion. I, I went through and did the math. I believe it was 210 yards of rushing in the second half, where in the first half, uh, you know, uh, Wabash struggled. They were trailing at the half, and then uh, Albion came out and scored quickly right away. And then bam, 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 Zurich, 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 and it's a 35-14 game when it's all over. Yeah, I spent more time, Pat, watching that game than any of the others, mostly because it was the only one where an underdog was was leading at any point uh, in the game. As uh, as I guess not at any point, but that one looked interesting for a while because because Albion had put a couple of touchdowns on the board, and so. Um, when that one got to the second half, the, the Wabash offensive line really turned it on, to be quite honest. Um, they didn't change their offense much at all. They were still running uh, inside zone sweeps, you know, kind of pretty basic plays, some some wheels, wheel route out of the backfield, throw into the backs. But um, it was it was their basic stuff. At least it seemed to be. Uh, the type, the the basic stuff that they type, they normally run. It was just uh, that that Wabash offensive line really buckled down early in the second half, and uh, and the holes that Zurich and, and a couple of the other backs had to run to run through were were pretty big holes. And and once you get it, you know, ahead of steam in the snow, those defensive guys aren't going to be slowing down and and able to break down and wrap up like they normally would. So they were bowling guys over, and, and it, that that game was a lot of fun. I think it was a good choice for your game ball. So. Uh, so yeah, if 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 Zurich is and his offensive line, if those guys are off the board, I'll give my uh, game ball to Cortland State quarterback Stephen Ferrara, who um, passed for 447 yards and kept the Red Dragons from having to worry about any late game heroics. Longtime listeners of the podcast will uh, will know that we've made reference several times to uh, to the way Cortland has had to win games this year. They didn't have to do that on Saturday. Uh, to great. Thanks, I guess, to the to to Salisbury, which uh, which fumbled six times and lost four of those fumbles. But uh, but Ferrer was economical, twenty three of twenty nine passing. He hit five players with passes of thirty yards or longer, and he uh, he carried the ball himself eighteen times for a couple of touchdowns. So yeah, hat hat tip to the defense for recovering those fumbles and also for racking up ten tackles for losses. But uh, but in a game that had plenty of potential to be a good one really one of the ones we were looking at in round one to be one of those games that maybe came down to the final few minutes that we were excited about in that last, that, that crazy hour. Uh, the Red Dragons scored a big victory for the Empire 8 against a former member of the conference and, uh, and now earned themselves a trip to Oregon. Uh, I wanted to play just a little bit of what uh, Cortland coach Dan McNeil said about Ferrara's performance. I've been blessed with some pretty good quarterbacks. Certainly Steve's performance and the way he performed this season will go down as, as one of those euphoric memories. There's no question. He is uh, he, a terrific, terrific player in, in, in the competitive circumstance that, that he's put in and calm and cool under pressure. So everybody's a little different, and, and, you know, every quarterback I have. And, 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 and Steve is Steve's a cool cat, and he is good under pressure, and he gives me a lot of confidence and his teammates a lot of confidence. Yeah, that's Stephen Ferrara. He's a cool cat. I'm hip to that jive. 
if I were to have a uh, a runner up for a game ball or someone else I wanted to mention, I don't have another spot to really talk about him here in this podcast, Keith. I, I wanted to highlight Travis Sparks Jackson. He's the uh, he's the running back for Laverne on a day in which, especially after the starting quarterback for the Leopards went out, like literally in the first series practically, uh, and the backup quarterback went out before halftime. Uh, you just knew that this was the guy who was going to get the ball and get the ball and get the ball and get the ball, and he looked good. Uh, you know, obviously he had uh, he was running against uh, one of the b- uh, better defenses, maybe one of the best defenses in Division Three. Um, when it comes to all region time, all region reminder to you who uh, have yet to nominate. Uh, when it comes to all region time, that's a guy who's going to be on the list, and I think he will be in the conversation for All American as well. So, just wanted to uh, just want to throw that in there. Yeah, I think that kind of gets lost a little bit in the the way some great team seasons end in the postseason or some fairly good teams. Laverne, probably a, a team on the rise, a team that that now in the in the Skyac will take uh, will take pretty seriously after pretty much from '94 until now. Uh, them not being a team that that you uh, consider a you know a conference title or a playoff contender. So uh, so I you see sometimes you know the 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 results and um you know you just say ah that team got blown out but there were I, I thought Laverne actually was was fairly impressive in how they they played with St. Thomas for portions of that game I thought you could probably make the same case for uh for Framingham State which was uh within seven of Wesley at the half and uh, maybe a couple other teams uh across the country on on Saturday if I give it an honorable mention out it has to go to the Mount Union defense for uh, for its twelve sacks of uh, of St. Lawrence, which played a couple of quarterbacks in their fifty five twenty three loss uh, in Alliance in round one. Yeah, I, I believe one of those knocked uh, the starter Leffelbein out of the game, uh, but so St. Lawrence actually scored. Of course, yes, uh, against uh, with the twos against the twos, or at least with the two quarterback against the two Mount Union defense. Yeah, it was fifty five seven at one point. So. I believe I predicted something like that. I don't know. All the predictions ran together at some point for me. Uh, I just knew that uh, the big uh, high-scoring close games that I predicted in a lot of places did not happen. Let's just put it that way. And that's probably a pretty good transition to uh, to talking about the St. Thomas bracket because we thought we were going to get a shootout in that uh, Thomas Moore Washington League game, and, and we really didn't. Yeah, clearly I should have remembered the way it went down when those two teams met the last time around. Uh, I thought we were in for that high-scoring game, and it turned out just to be high-scoring for the Saints. Uh, I'd have been better off just copying and pasting the 42-14 score from the uh, the Saints win when they met in 2010. Yeah, so so my takeaway from the top left St. Thomas bracket, uh, I guess if you're looking at this on your uh, on your computer screen or if you just have the bracket memorized, my takeaway is that this quadrant now has two of the three best round two matchups. Since Thomas Moore looked so good, they led they led WNL 42-7 at one point, and uh, and Wabash took a while to crank up the diesel. And and I didn't choose that phrase by accident. I'm pretty sure I saw Mason Zurich pump his fist the old John Riggins way a couple of times uh, in the middle of that game. So, you know, for all the talk about how it's too early to, to, to match the Minnesota powerhouses up, uh, it might not even be the most compelling second-round clash in that quadrant. Yeah, but it's definitely the one I have to talk about, um, it, uh, the Tommy Johnny round two game. Uh, that was all the talk at St. Thomas, both before and after the game. Uh, and I was on the MIAC's media podcast last week when the topic came up as well. I'm going to throw an excerpt of that in here. Uh, the MIC Media Podcast host is Mike Gallagher. Not sure that Johnny's Tommy's has ever taken place on the postseason stage. This would be a massive one, wouldn't it? Well, and certainly not since the uh, 
rivalry has blown up to be what Correct. it has been in the past uh, eight to ten years or so. But I, I will say this, you know, if if indeed that matchup does come to fruition, um, you know, it's it's Thanksgiving weekend, it's the holiday weekend. Uh, attendance is never as good in the, the postseason as it is in the regular season. Right. Um, and with the students being gone and on break, even though MIAC students are, are going to be generally close to home, I wouldn't expect there to be you know, the uh, 13, I would the extra seats needed or right. anything like that. I think we'd probably be, if we had 5,000 in the stands for a game like that, I would be, I would be satisfied. And I, I hope other people would be too. It's just, you know, the kind of the nature of the playoffs. Um, every, everybody has to pay to get in, including students. You know, there's no free passes because the NCAA wants all of its, uh, whatever revenue it can recover <laughs> from this big, massive sinkhole that is the division three football bracket mm-hmm. financially. So, I just wouldn't. Uh, I, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't be too excited per se to see what would end up in the stands. I know we would get a great game on the field, and I'm sure St. John's would acquit itself better than it did back in the uh, regular season meeting. Well, I got to say, you're kind of killing my buzz. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, man. Um, you know, you uh, think about that uh, that St. Thomas Bethel game too. Those schools are just eight miles apart, right? And we had a, a decent crowd that day. Um, and the weather was decent. I mean, there was snow on the ground, but it was, you know, the sun was out and that sort of thing. And, you know, what did we have that day? It's, it hasn't been great. Uh, Whitewater draws, you know, 10, 11,000 a couple times during the season. But they'll probably put four or 5,000 in the stands for a, a playoff game, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. It's just kind of the nature of the beast, unfortunately, in the playoffs. After talking to some people at the game, I, I might revise that uh, attendance estimate upward to maybe 6,000 or 7,000. Uh, but St. Thomas isn't going to bring in the extra bleachers, and I don't think they'll need them. It's just, uh, it just. Well, I've said it. I said it twice, I think, in the clip. Right? It's just the nature of the beast in the playoffs. What the Tommies might want to do is bring in some extra run defenders because you know Sam Sura is coming to town. Um, St. John's has definitely been throwing the ball better, but against Bethel, they only threw 14 times, and and to me that makes some sense because when I saw Bethel earlier in the year, uh, that secondary looked really good versus Warburg, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you know they continued to play really well throughout the course of the season. For my most intriguing second-round matchup, I'll double down. Uh, I don't think that was the best game from the Little Giants defense, and and Wabash is going to need their their best game defensively against Thomas Moore. I still don't exactly follow what's going on with the Saints quarterbacks. They played Jensen Gebhardt (laughs) against uh, WNL, but Brendan Kuntz came in and uh, threw two two passes, both for touchdowns, and, uh, and neither one in garbage time. But that offense, it looks a lot better with C.T. Tarrant back in the backfield. Yeah. Uh, meantime, you know, Mason Zurich is making a national name for himself if he hadn't been already. And it's hard to predict whether the Saints-Little Giants game would be a shootout, a slugfest, or something in between. But I think it's the rare game in these playoffs that features teams who are more compelling now today, or a matchup that's more compelling today, than it was a week ago when the brackets were revealed. I, I tell you, I, that's a when it comes to Friday and we have to predict a score of that game, Keith, I, I have no idea what I'm going to, I don't even, I'm not even entirely sure. Uh, I usually generally will go with my poll ballot, uh, which would have Wabash winning, especially at home, but I, I'm not even so convinced about that right now. Well, I mean, Thomas Moore, as much as anyone in, in the first round, you know, maybe Cortland state's in this group too. teams have changed your opinion that you that you had coming in. I think a lot of teams did what we expected them to do, whether it's Oshkosh or or uh, you know Wesley kind of struggling for a little while but pulling away almost exactly how we expected those games to go. I, I think Thomas Moore was the one that that really stood out uh, by by basically you know crushing WNL. 
Let's uh, move on to the bottom left bracket or the Linfield bracket. Uh, let's see. My takeaway out of this is uh, playoff experience uh, winning out over a regular season champion. Uh, throwing out for the moment about the three-way tie for first in the AAC. I'm just talking about the two teams that made the playoffs. And that means uh, Harden-Simmons is the leader. They're the higher seed. They won the head-to-head game in the regular season. But, you know, Mary Harden-Baylor hasn't missed the second round since 2003 uh, when the crew was inexplicably snubbed. Otherwise, Mary Harden-Baylor would have made the playoffs 15 times in the 18-year history of the program, uh, and they've uh, been to the second round uh, now 12 years in a row. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor certainly knows how to win first-round playoff games, and they know how to get out of Texas. Uh, they'll be good in this second round game this week, and and, uh, and then we'll see moving on. But uh, I really thought that uh, this was a this was an opportunity for uh, Mary Harden Baylor to kind of get uh, get its game on track. They, we talked several times over the course of the season that they struggle early, um, and even so, in this game, they had uh, they had uh, three uh, their first three possessions. They started in Harden Simmons territory and came up empty each time, but they did manage to find it and turn it on uh, early enough to put this game out of reach. So my takeaway from this quadrant is uh, because they, they made the Island teams eliminate each other in round one, the matchups are actually less compelling in round two, which is, is pretty rare. Um, but seeing Cortland state go cross country will be neat and, and neat is probably the best word for it <laughs> uh, because Linfield and Mary Harden Baylor look so good on Saturday that, uh, that it's hard to believe they won't meet in round three or as most people call it, the quarterfinals. I also think that that this, you know, whether it's round one or or any playoff game, really, this is where coaching matters, and we saw that with Mary Harden Baylor really doing a number on on Harden Simmons on that that, and that's a Harden Simmons team that beat it um, on the same field 28 days prior. Now, playoffs are about talent and team chemistry, sure, but a lot of it begins with quickly breaking down what the opponent is, what it does, and communicating that to the team because you you, only, you get a very short week of practice and especially if you're the road team that's that's traveling and you know in Mary Harden Baylor's case they didn't have to uh, go overnight but uh but the team that has to travel has to really be focused and not distracted because you still have uh tests and papers and all that stuff due during that week too and in in human nature is all you can really focus on probably is the playoff game so I think being able to keep that team focused and not distracted is huge and there's a lot to be said for for the job coach Fredenberg and staff did this week you know, we've talked a bit about how coaches sometimes don't mind the travel and that it, sometimes maybe it's even more distracting at home. I suspect, in fact, that might even be more true for a program that hasn't been in the playoffs in a while like Harden-Simmons. Yeah, I, I like the, I like being on the road, and I and we can recount stories over the years, whether it's Linfield last year or, or Pacific Lutheran going back to 99, teams that really loved to play on the road. They kind of took the opportunity to uh, to enjoy it, make it a bonding experience, and uh, it also gets you away from everything that's back on campus, whether it's um, you know your normal clubs or or whatever other kinds of things you do outside of football and outside of class, or people who who want to go to the game and kind of want to be hangers on uh, that particular week, uh, it gets you away from all that. So so I think there is something uh, something that's kind of cool and fun about the travel if you embrace it, but I think. It really, really compresses the week for uh, for the road team and especially that coaching staff because they got to, you know, kind of break down the, the the video from the game before, get that game plan pretty much decided on and figured out by the time you get back to practice on Monday, right? You play Saturday, you'll be off Sunday, you'll be back in Monday, and uh, and then you got to install that game plan. And for teams that you haven't seen before, this is why we always tend to think 
the, uh, the, the, the triple option teams may have a chance. And uh, it turned out on, on Saturday, Salisbury WNL didn't look very good at all. But um, just having to break that down in a short window is, uh, is, is really where the, the highlights good coaching staffs. Uh, add Mary Harden Baylor in 2004 to that list of road warriors. And this week with the, um, uh, with the holiday uh, travel and such is going to be even more compressed. It'll be an even shorter week. Uh, let's see. Most intriguing second round matchup out of this bracket in this round. Um, yeah. I mean, you said it, Keith, the, the more compelling matchups have already been burned in the first round. So can we talk about Wabash and Thomas Moore some more because uh, of this convoluted cost containment bracket? Uh, I guess the biggest question for me is going to be what Cortland looks like after flying across the country or, you know, uh, me who used to work for a travel management company, what kind of flight gets you from Montgomery, Alabama to Belton, Texas? And, and I'm thinking uh, if it were me, the most efficient flight would most efficient travel would be a two hour bus ride to Atlanta and then flying out of there to Dallas or hopefully Austin and taking a bus from there. Well, Cortland is probably flying from what, like uh, Albany or Rochester, or maybe even, they're not flying from New York City to get no, all the way out to Portland. No, they're um, flying. Yeah, they're flying a charter, so they could go from Albany oh. to some. Yeah, you go that far, you're you're getting a charter flight. So they're gonna they'll get something that's not too difficult. Actually, just the fact that you're gonna be on a small plane for a long time. Well, yeah, I'm super inexperienced with flying for for D3 games. We didn't uh, we didn't fly anywhere back at Randolph Macon, but I think. Um, Cortland State at Linfield giving us a chance to to measure what the Empire 8 strength really was this season is maybe my most intriguing second-round matchup. Um, but this might not even be an accurate reading with the Wildcats playing so far out of their minds. Whitworth won nine games, but in eight quarters against Linfield, they were outscored 100-20. to 20. So it's a tall task for Cortland State to go cross-country, play at the Cat Dome, especially given the flying for a team who's geographically located in a, in a sea of other D3 teams, and they never have to board a plane for a game. Yeah, in the end, I mean, it is the best team in the Empire against the best team in the Northwest Conference, but it's, what, number two against number 25 or something like that? There's several degrees of separation in Division Three between the, uh, the top and the bottom of the pole. Yeah, I guess the point is is the Empire 8 was so jumbled this season. They beat up on each other so much, kind of didn't get an accurate reading on how strong it, strong it was. And if Cortland goes out there and plays well, maybe like that game that Hampton-Sydney played out at Linfield a few years ago where it was you know back and forth for a while, you know, maybe you can, you can uh, draw some conclusions from that, but, but maybe, maybe you can't. Now let's look at the Mountain Union bracket, uh, and my takeaway from this is you know, these games are what we thought they would be, uh, all blowouts. Uh, so Will Haskett, the guy who hosted the selection show on NCA.com, tried his best to hype this bracket, but there just wasn't much to write home about for the first round. And even the uh, the so-called close game, the one with the two statistically outstanding quarterbacks, really kind of showed the difference between Matthew Silva excelling in the MASCAC and Joe Callahan excelling in the NJAC. Uh, Silva got to 312 yards, uh, but he had to throw 52 times to do it. Uh, that offense, uh, however, the Wesley offense is going to be a load for Johns Hopkins to handle next week. Uh, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself. We could talk about that in a minute. Yeah, my takeaway from this bracket is that, you know, Mountain Union is still its dominant self, always is in round one. But but Albright beating Norwich by 49 and Johns Hopkins having no trouble at all with Western New England, uh, that really took any hint of suspense out of this quadrant uh, of the bracket on Saturday. Uh, it also didn't say much for football in New England, and D3 fans should care uh, about football in New England because of the conference realignment up there. It's it's eating up automatic bids. 
Framingham State um, or Framingham State, if you want to overpronounce it. <laughs> um, they were uh, they were within seven uh, of Wesley at the half, but I think we expected the Rams to be the New England team that it acquitted itself best, even after getting the toughest draw. So maybe the best team in New England this season was 8-0 Amherst, which by choice wasn't even in the field. I don't even know where we would squeeze them into the bracket. And think about the Pool C conversation if we had one less team to talk about. Like, yeah, I mean, there's ten NESCAC teams, so they would they would totally have a, uh, a automatic bid waiting for them whenever they want to join. Amherst could have played. Uh, I I don't even want to. I don't want to. Yeah, don't. Yeah, no, don't do it. No, no, no. Are they within 500 miles of Mount? Okay. Um, most intriguing second round matchup has to be the Johns Hopkins Wesley game in this bracket uh, for sure. Uh, this was a great first round matchup in 2013. Wesley won that game with 13 seconds left. Uh, that was a pairing that should have been a later uh, a later pairing in that bracket, uh, and it was in the first round then. A little more appropriate here in the second round, and I expect it to be a close game again. Uh, Callahan threw for 244 yards and four touchdowns in that game two years ago. Stuart Walters, who ran for 97 yards and a score for Johns Hopkins. Jamar Baynard was the leading rusher for Wesley in that last matchup, so there's definitely some familiarity there. Yeah, I think that familiarity is a big deal, too, because you you have to figure out Johns Hopkins by now uh, must believe it can play with the Wolverines. That they, they don't think that there's this l- huge level of separation between Wesley, a team that's always, you know, quarterfinal, semifinal kind of team every year, and, and Johns Hopkins, which goes 10-0 and, and, and struggles to get out of the first and second round. I, I think having that result and having a lot of players from 2013 be on this, this year's roster um, and that game really won that Hopkins probably – um, you know, if, if they were able to cover Steve Kadusu on the last uh, last drive there, um, they, they'd have won that game and it would have been upset that sent ripples throughout uh, D3. Um, they didn't. And uh, but I, but I think that result maybe has some some um, spillover into this season just for the fact that Johns Hopkins, I think, probably believes it can, it can play with Wesley. Yeah, and it should. Uh, it should believe it can play with Wesley. Um, the other matchup, the one that both of us consensus uh, think is not the most intriguing, of course, is Albright at at uh, at Mount Union. And uh, in 2009, those two teams met, I believe, in the second round also, and Mount Union won that one 55-3. So we're moving on to the bottom right, which is the Wisconsin-Oshkosh bracket, where, hey, um, you know, at least we had something interesting in this bracket, right? Ohio Northern did a great job coming back. Um, I had a, a a DM exchange on Twitter with Dean Paul as he was on the road back to Ada, and I don't think this is necessarily super off the record, but um, I'll paraphrase it just in case, and I don't think I'm uh, saying anything out of line here. I was talking to him about uh, Ricardo Johnson the third. You remember him? That's the much hyped sophomore JUCO transfer quarterback. He got he worked his way into the lineup near the end of the season. Uh, I pulled that picture of him that we used on the front page, and remembering that uh, Johnson came from Minnesota, I joked that he should be uh, used to playing in the cold and the snow. And uh, let's just say I got general agreement back. Yeah, you know, you got to also get to mention your guy from Creighton, Durham, and in, uh, in Saint Paul, Minnesota. I did I, have to look that up before the podcast. I well, good I job had though. Tell me, that. name me, name me another uh, 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 talented uh, quarterback who came from Creighton, Durham Hall. Joe Mauer. Yeah, there you go. I say a guy who's All not right. playing quarterback anymore. Good job. So, well done. So, my uh, oh wait, from... one more. Chris Winky also. Oh, all right. Well, there's a list of them. I didn't realize there were that many. Um. 
So bottom right bracket, my takeaway, uh, Ohio Northern had no business getting in the field. <laughs> or maybe they did since they rallied to, to beat Franklin. Admittedly, not the strongest automatic qualifier and kind of a weird choice to host a game in, in this particular game. Um, I guess it's kind of just how the chips fall when you have to match up, say, Mary Harden-Baylor and, and Harden-Simmons in round one. You end up with some teams that um, that don't necessarily probably deserve a home game playing home. Um, but thank goodness this matchup was set because it was the best game around one, and it, it provided the kind of memorable moments for uh, for the ONU kids that make the game special. It was uh, it was 16-0 at the half, and, and Ohio Northern was the one with zero. So uh, they put put together a uh, a pretty great second half, and I believe uh, Franklin even came back and took the lead uh, 22-21, and then and then Ohio Northern drove. Uh, for uh, for the game-winning score and that one ate up about five five minutes eleven seconds off the clock on uh, on their game-winning drive. So that was the game. Of course, I was you know stuck on on Wabash Albion for for too long and, and missed most of that finish. But uh, but that was the finish of uh, of Saturday afternoon. I had no problem with Ohio Northern getting in, just not as the only two-loss team. Uh, that just you know throwing that out there, I, and I think we all picked Ohio Northern to beat Franklin uh, in our triple take picks as well. So uh, we knew we knew this would happen. This is the way it works. St. John Fisher, right? It's this. We should call that the St. John Fisher corollary or something. But if you're the if you're a two loss team from a strong conference and you get in as the one of the last teams in Pool C, you'll beat a Pool A qualifier from a weaker conference. Yeah, yeah, there. That's it. That's it. Um, the formula for that. <laughs> something like that. That doesn't really uh, account for uh, St. John Fisher beating John Carroll a couple of years ago, but, you know, it uh, it's a start. Uh, it doesn't necessarily just apply to St. John Fisher, apparently. Um, most intriguing second round matchup in this, uh, in this bracket, obviously, boy, there, there's a both really good matchups and, and I would be happy to be at either one of them. In fact, uh, having never seen Ohio Northern play, perhaps I should be going to Oshkosh, but I realized kind of midweek last week that it, it made sense just to book a flight to Chicago anyway. Uh, neither Wheaton nor Whitewater was going to lose its first round matchup. And even if the committee put the game in the wrong stadium, I was going to be flying to O'Hare one way or the other, but, uh, uh, Ohio Northern versus Wisconsin Oshkosh is also a strong matchup, um, but I'll let Keith talk about the, uh, the the bigger game on the other side of this bracket. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Whitewater Wheaton. Uh, Pat, you'll be there in the Chicago area either way, as you mentioned. Um, uh, you'll be there watching the number five and number six teams in our poll do battle. And for the Thunder, I think it's a huge opportunity to get over the hump against the cream of the crop. Wheaton, always, Wheaton is always good for a playoff win. They're now 10-0 and in their first-round games. Their playoff exits always come against teams from the OAC or MIAC, uh, elite conferences. And now there's a, here's a WIAC matchup. Um, I think six of those exits have, have come against Mount Union. Uh, they lost last season. They got bounced by, by a pretty good John Carroll team. Uh, on a more base level, for the Warhawks, do they have the offensive diversity to hang in there if Adam Dansdill and the Wheaton defense, which limited Lakeland to 69 yards on 63 plays in round one? Uh, what if that defense slows the, the run game down? D does Whitewater have the, the offensive diversity without a Jay Kumaro around to bail them out, without a Tyler Huber type of wide receiver to, uh, to, to save them? Um, you know, is Wheaton's offense healthy enough to face Whitewater's defense? They've been banged up and they, 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 Seemed to get everybody back uh, for round one, but that game was was kind of not a representative game, uh, as you heard Mike Swider talk about uh, in the open because the the, the snow there uh, in uh, in Wheaton was so bad. 
Um, you know, and, and do the Warhawks have the, the, that playoff magic, the mid-game adjustment magic, now that Brian Borland and Lance Leipold are in Buffalo and Kevin Bullis is leading the staff? I think there's so much to be answered in, in what could be the, the best game of round two. Well, that's good. I feel good about having uh, booked a flight to go there then. Thanks, man. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> whenever, I need to, whenever I need to feel good about uh, the, the games I've chosen to go to, I appreciate that. Uh, I will, uh, I'll check in with Keith. Uh, I went to St. Thomas Laverne this week, partially because I'd never seen Laverne play. Uh, and they were the closest game to me. And I still have this list, right, of, of schools that I have seen and schools that I haven't seen. Um, I'm down to, I believe, 98 now. Uh, and I'm, I don't have too many more in the playoffs. Uh, when we get to this point in the playoffs of the final 16, usually I've seen about uh, 17 and a half of them. So, yeah, um, yeah, you end up going to places that you've been quite often before. <laughs> it's just, just kind of how it works. Yeah, I, we have kind of like a, a yearly appointment at, for me. It's at Wesley, and you'll be at St. Thomas or St. John's. Uh, it's just kind of kind of how it works. Um, yeah. I am so good at lightning rounds. So let's go into the lightning round uh, where. You know the uh, the other postseason games, right? The uh, the bowl games, um, the ones between the the uh, the MAC and the Centennial this year, kind of threw a new wrinkle into things, and it seemed pretty interesting. Uh, Keith, it, uh, from everything that uh, I heard and I talked to a couple of people, uh, it seemed that the teams were really into playing in these games, uh, representing their conferences, and I think that that's a formula that could continue to work. I, I think that uh, maybe the ECAC formula might be uh, a little tired after 20-some years, and this is something that might make more sense in Division Three. Yeah, it, it's weird. I, I totally, We didn't talk about this beforehand or, or off the, the air or rec- off the recording or anything like that, but we totally agree. Um, I, it, it's very, it's a very subtle difference because they're both postseason bowl games. They're one-offs. They're, there's no playoff involved. There's nothing at stake except pride and, and a trophy. But we've seen kind of over the years, some teams are really into the ECAC games and some teams are so disappointed from not getting into the playoffs that they don't play that well in the ECAC game. And, and even though this year uh, some of those games had, had great finishes, one of the scores in the ECAC game was 11-10, to 10, so you know that was a good game. Um, but for, there was something about the Mac Centennial format that uh, that had the teams really seem like they're really into it, and, and I think that's a formula. Yeah, that could that could be duplicated uh, across the country. You know, in in the case of the Mac and the Centennial, um, because those teams are mostly Pennsylvania teams. Uh, Stevenson was one of the teams in it there from Maryland, but um, but close enough to Pennsylvania where. You have a kind of a natural rivalry anyway, even though they don't play. I think that that gives gives something to the bowl uh, experience. I think be, having um, parents be close enough to drive, whether it's two or three or four hours, something where you can make a weekend out of it, and it's the weekend before Thanksgiving, so you're not already um, you're not already somewhere out of town where you can't get to this game on short notice. I, I think that that is uh, is definitely a promising format, and you could see like-minded conferences try to do it, uh, whether it's Liberty League or Empire 8. I think it would really be good in the Midwest and, and West um, where teams don't, don't have these kind of extra opportunities like the, uh, like the ECAC provides. Uh, we already know that the, what is it, the MIAA and the NAC, the NAC, <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. have a, um, 
they already have a, a, a in-season challenge. So, you know, maybe the, because of the relationship between the, the conferences, they could do something in the postseason. Uh, and, and to be honest, there are enough seven and eight win teams in, uh, in the MAC and Centennial to make it worth their while. Um, I wanted to point out one uh, one interesting result, or I guess a a season that kind of flew under the radar from the ECAC Fest of uh, Bulls. So one of the first ones that happened, which I think was, I think this game was at 11 a.m. on Friday morning or something like that. But uh, Westminster of PA uh, defeated uh, St. John Fisher 42-21. So Westminster very quietly ended up nine and two. That's a that's a really good season for the Titans by far. By far the best season that they've had since moving over uh, and becoming full members of Division Three. Uh, they were formerly powers in the NAIA. Yeah, the the scores that that stood out to me too uh, from the uh, ECAC Fest and what the, what the ECAC did was take uh, six games and schedule them over a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I, I believe you had two games per day, um, and then all six teams were playing on the same field. So the whole thing was was in one place, which. In theory, sounds like it could be interesting, but it also kind of logistically, um, what well, it's kind of it's the reason why the the Mac and the Centennial did their own thing. Um, but the games turned out to be pretty good. Some of them, the the Alfred Fitchburg State game was the eleven to ten game, uh, RPI twenty to thirteen over Buff State. Um, the one that really I thought was interesting. I don't know if interesting is the right word, but we had talked I think last week or the week before in the podcast about Carnegie Mellon running up a bunch of points late in the season, and they did it again uh, in a bowl win over Bridgewater State, forty-eight thirteen. So, uh, so that may be a team to mark down for uh, for next season uh, when we uh, we start thinking about these kind of things uh, in kickoff and. Dear Lord, we're not even through the playoffs, so we're not already thinking about kickoff. I'm sorry for mentioning it. <laughs> uh, you should be. Uh, also, I was picturing where would I put that list, uh, the list of people to watch next year for kickoff. I'd like to set a reminder in my phone for July 1st uh, with Carnegie Mellon and Westminster and Barry and Hendricks and... And Laverne. And and Laverne, um, you know, so we we talked really, really briefly about them, but they, that's a, uh, a program that turned itself around significantly, not just the fact that they haven't been in the playoffs since 1994, um, but you know, they were 2-7 and seven last year. Um, that's a huge turnaround. Uh, they give a lot of credit to a, a new assistant coach who kind of came in and uh, whipped one side of the ball into shape. I am so sorry that I do not have the details on that in front of me. Um and I think that's Coach Rodriguez. And if it's not, then I'm super apologizing right now. Um, so that happened. And then also, uh, but they won a lot of those games really cl- uh, close too. There's a, a lot of uh, a lot of close games, and they gave up a lot of points, obviously. Um, but I, I thought they acquitted themselves really well on Saturday, and uh, and we mentioned that already. Um, we didn't talk a whole lot on this podcast about Hendricks. They certainly, uh, um, you know, they acquitted themselves really well in the in the playoff game as well. That game was tied with Huntington at the half, and then Huntington kind of pulled away in the second half. But uh, Hendricks is a team that, you remember, they basically have no seniors either. I think they had one senior. This was just the third year of their program, so they're going to be pretty good next year. Um, and you mentioned it too already. Uh, you know, Keith, there's a lot of really good teams, uh, especially some who came in at 10-0 and and, uh, and lost and maybe lost in uh, uh, large fashion on Saturday. Yeah, and and it's 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 tough. I mean, especially I th- I think as a player, you kind of 
you believe in your own team. And so when you're 10 and 0 and you you got no reason to not believe that your team can uh can can start to make a run here and you really feel like, man, we can we could probably we could probably beat Mountain Union. We could change we could change the opinion of our program and and you go out there and you know your your team's down three or four touchdowns in, in the second half. It's got to be tough and it takes probably a few days or weeks to get over before you get back to the point where you're proud of what you what your team did, whether it's ten and one or nine and two or or eight and three. Uh, a lot of teams took took big steps forward. I think they were surprising surprisingly good. I mean, WNL was not someone we we thought they'd be good. We didn't peg them for ten and zero. Uh, Hendricks is a team that we thought would be good, but but we also thought the SAA would have Rhodes and and um, who else is at the top of the conference? That was the uh, Barry and somebody else. We thought there were other teams were going to be good uh, this Center. year. Center. Center, thank you. Which was ten and zero last year and had a really disappointing first round loss to uh, to John Carroll. Um, Saint Scholastica is another one, a team a, a team that's kind of mastered the art of winning its conference, but has can't make any ground up on, on the Minnesota and Wisconsin power teams around them. So it it can be really really tough to go from riding this high of a 10 and 0 season or a 9 and 1 season and getting into the playoffs and then just having it all come crashing down within a matter of hours. Obviously, the uh, all but 16 teams in Division Three football are in their postseason right now. Uh, another big thing that happens, of course, at this time of year is the uh, coaching carousel starts turning. Uh, a lot of coaches have uh, lost their jobs over the course of the last week or so. Um, and I, I, you can get the full list by going to the coaching carousel page, which is under news or should stay mostly in the front page rotation. If you're visiting on the desktop, that is not on the mobile where you only get the top four stories. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple of them. Uh, Keith, uh, Todd Glazer lost his job at Eau Claire. Uh, they were three and 27 the past three seasons. One of the things that I was reminded of when, uh, when this news broke this past week, Keith, was that Lance Leipold was a finalist for that job in 2006 when Glazer got it. Wow. Um, yeah, that's about the reaction I had. I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's nothing nice you can say at, at that point. Um, he might have he might have only been there a year. Obviously, if the whitewater jo- if the whitewater job opened up and that's his alma mater, he might have made right. a quick jump. But that would have been interesting. Right. Well, there was a lot of consternation at the time he was hired at Whitewater, and it, it turned out to be yeah. uh, clearly the right guy for that job. I think it worked so, out right uh, there. So at the time, the coaching carousel spinning. You don't really know where what the future is going to hold, but um, you know sometimes the, the decisions that uh, that some ads or presidents are making uh, end up being genius decisions, and some of them uh, don't work out so well. And you know in D three you don't hear about a lot of firing, say like because boosters put pressure on the school. You know the firings happen because the guys you know the, it's cl- either just clearly not working or the coach is 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 ready to move on. And in a lot of cases. Um, you know, guys hang it up after you know, 20 or 30 successful years. Uh, one guy hanging it up this year is uh, Steve Staker. He's, uh, he's been at Co a long time. He's only been the head coach for eight years, but uh, Steve Staker steps down, and uh, Tyler Staker, who played for him and I think is, uh, was a senior in 2004, uh, that's the guy who's going to replace him there. Uh, another retire, uh, another retirement. Jim Monos at Lebanon Valley. Uh, you know he was he was the coach when Lebanon was respectable the first time around. Then he left, went to Division Two, came back, and actually brought Lebanon to the Division Three playoffs. Uh, oh. and, and he is uh, yeah. Go ahead. 
Oh, I just was agreeing with you. Sorry that that they had that year uh, where they were nine and one, yeah, um, and, and tied with Albright, and then I believe they went to the playoffs the year after that as well. Yeah, that's right. They had two really good years in a row, one of which ended in the NCAA playoffs. Uh, but the one I really wanted to highlight is uh, and and throw a little shout out and congratulations to Mike DeLong, who yep. Uh, yeah, retired at Springfield, 32 years the head coach there uh, with 201 career wins. Not quite the active uh, winningest coach in Division Three right now, uh, but uh, still a uh, still up there in the in the upper echelon. And, um, you know, he's uh, he's been a a. a a public figure really in division three football as well, not just because his team has been prominent in a lot of those years, but also as a member of the division three football committee and just kind of having been around the game for a long time. So well wishes uh, to Mike DeLong. Yeah. For Mike, he was always a guy who you could call um, to explain something or I could, I'll just say, I, I speak for myself. I could call him um, when I was writing the around the nation column, if I didn't understand something and he would explain it to me. Uh, he was very good about, um, I just felt like, you know, when he was on the committee, he got it. He understood what it meant to be fair, to be um, what it meant to get into the postseason for all these different schools and that, you know, the most they could do uh, as part of the committee was 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 do their best job to be fair to wh- whichever group of kids uh, deserve to get in. So uh, beyond just being a good coach for, for Springfield, uh, which as a program, um, you know, has had ups and downs winning-wise, but it churned out a lot of uh, – uh, pretty prominent uh, coaches, guys that have gone on to coach in the NFL and, and so forth, um, and all those guys probably owe a debt to uh, to Mike DeLong. But he also was was great to us in in helping us um, shape our coverage over the years because uh, because you need guys you you can depend on to be honest with you. One other thing, of course, that's big about the postseason is it's award season time. Uh, the uh, the 10 semifinalists for the Glardy Trophy will be out uh, later today. If you're listening to this on Monday, you should see them uh, uh, about mid-afternoon on Monday. Um, you know, you should get a peek back and get a look at the list and also uh, cast your ballot in the fan voting. So it was, uh, as in the past, uh, there are 40 voters on the uh, in the Glardy Trophy uh voting panel and the uh, collective votes of you guys the fans voting on d3football.com will be ballot number 41 so uh, please come by and vote you can vote once per device um so definitely do that and we'll have a you know the the list of them and then of course we will be there in uh, salem virginia when uh when the eventual winner gets named on wednesday december 16th uh an evening broadcast and uh we presume that it will be run similarly as before, and we'll have a, a great time bringing that information to you. Of course, also our all-region um, uh, uh, nomination process is still open, so that is for sports information directors specifically, um, and the deadline for that is next Sunday, which I think is, that would be just the November 29th. Yeah, I could do the math. Um, so get that done, uh, because that's how we do our, that's how we select all region teams and eventually all Americans, which get announced on the stag bowl pregame show on Friday, December 18th. Did I miss anything there? I think I got all of the postseason award stuff. Yep. You hit the good stuff. Also, uh, features throughout the week, uh, on the road to Salem. We've had, uh, one of them is, uh, posted already. Um, you can find it on Twitter and uh, buried a little bit, but it'll make the front page later on Monday. Um, and we'll have continued to have uh, features, and then we'll have our picks 
on Friday. I think you probably also, if you entered the bracket challenge, you got an email saying where you finished. Uh, I clearly apparently did not finish filling out a ballot, so I won't be on the leaderboard this year because I skipped a whole bracket. Way to go, Pat. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have skipped. Uh, I don't know which bracket I should have skipped, in all honesty. Uh, I probably picked. Did we both maybe pick 14 or so correctly in triple take, Keith? I think I got, I went against you guys on in a good way on Thomas Moore and Huntingdon. Yeah, did I get both of those? Yeah, I, well, I get, if you went against me, you got both of those right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I did did well picking winners, but um, it, it comes you know it comes back to bite you because um, when you guys review the kickoff picks, oh yeah, I, I look. I looked at that uh, earlier this week because <laughs> Ryan made reference to it in Around the Nation. Yeah. Mine are mine are really bad. Like I was way off on the Final Four and uh, and who I thought was was going to be the last team into the playoffs and stuff. So um, I'll get mine. I seem to remember the last team getting into the playoffs on my pick was Ohio Northern at eight and two. Yeah, if you did that and that was highly prescient. I uh, mine was Rhodes nine and one. I also picked like Western Connecticut State to win the MassCAC. Yeah, I so was did just, I. just wrong all across the board. Only I got a couple. I got a couple uh, picks still out there that that might land. Uh, Whitewater still alive. Uh, Alex Hoff could. could oh, no, 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 no! Don't tell me names of I. I. I cannot look at that stuff. Names of individual award winners. I don't want to be tainted by that at this point. Uh, well, certainly <laughs> we, we we would. That's not. We wouldn't want to pick. Uh, I know the All Americans. I know. Um, I know. But man, that was for, for the. We made those picks 14 weeks ago, and by the time we get around to that final Around the Nation podcast where we pick who's going to be the offensive and defensive player of the year and the coach of the year, it'll have been 18 weeks previous. I, I'm pretty good at forgetting it. Well, the, yeah, the, yeah the, good, the, the thing is when you look back at that, and, and Ryan will do this in the Around the Nation, um, the final Around the Nation of the season. So if you're still listening, that's um, something that you'll want to read because it's, uh, it just kind of wraps uh, all the season into one big um, jumble of happy memories and not so happy memories. Um, but it's funny to look back at the impressions of what we thought was going to happen this season. And then just through 11 weeks of games, now week 12 of the playoffs, and we still have four more weeks to write the final chapters on this season. But, uh, but it's so interesting to think what we thought would happen and then to see what actually does happen. And what actually does happen, we still have 15 more games to decide the 2015 Division Three National Championship. 16 teams still alive, two of them aiming themselves eventually to Salem, Virginia to meet in Stag Bowl 43. This was the Around the Nation podcast, number 143, for the week of November 23rd, 2015. Thanks for listening, and uh, keep tuned for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in the the iTunes store or your favorite uh, podcast place to help other football fans find it. Thanks for following Division 3 Football on D3Football.com. And everybody, have a great Thanksgiving. Travel safely wherever you may be heading.